Hello, and welcome. I'm Mark Wentworth, and you're listening to Tales of the Sea. This series is my chance to share some of my favorite stories, poetry, plays, music, and true life adventures inspired by the sea. Along the way, we'll occasionally hear about and meet with some of the talented and courageous individuals who brought some of these tales and adventures to life. I grew up boating on the lakes in Michigan and learned to sail in the waters of Long Island Sound in New York State. I can honestly say being on the water is truly my happy place. That's why it's my pleasure to share and celebrate some of my favorite tales of the sea with you. When it comes to the question of how we will feed a world population estimated to be 8.5 billion people by the year 2030, attention has recently turned to the sea and sustainable aquaculture. Aquaculture is the controlled cultivation or farming of fish, shellfish, and aquatic plants. My guest today is Jeff Auger. Jeff is the Director of Business Growth and Acquisitions for Atlantic Aqua Farms, one of North America's largest growers, processor, and distributor of high-quality shellfish. I wanted to know what Jeff, who is based in Maine and focused primarily on oyster farming, thought about aquaculture practices that are currently in use. The practices that are being conducted, especially in Maine, are some of the best, most sustainable ways to grow food or protein that you could possibly do. So uh, Maine has always been a leader in um, regulation and also mitigating any impact that these practices have. And they're doing a tremendous job. So, Jeff, the goal of sustainable aquaculture sounds like it's something that may be within reach. Shellfish aquaculture in and of itself, I think, is completely sustainable because we are not adding anything to the environment. So sustainability is a term that gets thrown around a lot now and um, gets used for a, a bunch of different things. And when I think about, you know, what is sustainable, it, I guess at the core, it's the ability for something to be maintained over a long period of time, Right. Yeah, I guess that means, can it be a reliable, predictable food source? Am I saying that right? To me, it's, can you grow, you know, protein in that manner and not uh, irreparably harm the environment or some other aspect of society while doing it? And I think shellfish aquaculture is uniquely poised to complete that definition Jeff, I know you're focused on shellfish, uh, specifically oysters. So your mission is to make sure the farming and harvesting does not harm the surrounding environment. We not only, I would say, don't you know harm our space, but we actively improve it. Um, shellfish are a keystone species in the estuary. Oysters and clams and mussels, you know, not only are critical for the health of the water quality in an area, but they are can be thought of as almost environmental engineers because they build reefs, they build beds. And on these reefs and beds, um, they aid in the propagation of a multitude of other organisms. 
So, in other words, the shellfish themselves help keep the environment in good working order. And what else do these little engineers do? Um, They cause, you know, reductions in waves that help with erosion along the coast. And they're a completely natural um, aspect of our coastlines that have been missing for probably the last 70 to 80 years. So we have a whole generation of people that have sort of grown up not knowing what the natural coastline should look or be like. We're creating an impact that is a net positive for the environment and the community. Jeff, how did this all start with you? Where was the interest born? I I know you grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Did you get interested in the environment at that time? You know, living on Cape Cod, it's all around you all the time, omnipresent. Swimming and diving, looking at all the creatures and crabs and things on the bottom. Uh, It's kind of what I remember doing most of, just exploring uh, what was under the waves. The ocean is always part of what you do. Everywhere you drive, you see it. Everywhere you go. I was used to seeing sunsets and sunrises on the horizon every day. It's really a special place. Um, and even in high school, we would all go out and uh, have bonfires out on the beach. You know, it was a great, a great place to grow up. And it uh, kind of intimately connected me with uh, the ocean. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I spent my junior high and high school years on Long Island Sound in New York. Uh, The salt air was always there, lots of exploration, uh, the tide pools and so on. What about your parents? Were they environmentalists? You know, both of my parents were wildlife biologists for the most part. My mother uh, studied American crows for a little bit. My father had all sorts of wildlife studies that he conducted from coyotes to turtles to bats. And so I was always outside. I was always doing things with nature. And I'm very fortunate to have two parents that kind of instilled those values. So when did oyster farming catch your interest? I can remember trying to get jobs in the summer when my father kind of kicked me out of the house and said I needed a real job. So I went out and interviewed at Toys R Us and Panera and uh, Best Buy, all the all the jobs that, you know, punk high school kids get. And uh, I played sports at the time, so I needed to take a few days off a week. And basically every one of those places kind of laughed in my face and said, you know, we're not going to let you start and then take three days off the next the next day. Right. Um, a family friend of ours ran an oyster farm in Barnstable and so reached out to him. And he basically said, yeah, come work a Tide, see if you like it. Um, We tend to only need help on the Tide. So even if you have a game or something, you know, there's a good chance you could just work three or four hours that day and then go home. I started with him at that company and never looked back. I mean, it was, you know, we kind of say you either love it or you hate it. This kind of work for the most part is very obvious. I loved it initially and still do. Uh, So I worked with him in high school, worked with him in uh, college. Uh, You know, my vacations, I'd come back and work. And even when I was in law school, I'd I'd come home and work uh, for that company. I think I I worked with them for about 12 or 13 years, it feels like on and off. Um, 
So I always had that in my the back of my head um, as something I wanted to do. You mentioned law school, and I remember when we first met, you had said that uh, environmental law was something you were considering. Were there other factors involved in your decision to pursue a law degree? One of the other reasons that I went to law school is I was talking with with uh, this gentleman when I graduated college, trying to figure out what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do, and he he basically said, "Oh, don't go into." Don't go into aquaculture or shell fishing. We don't make any money. It's too hard. There's nothing there. And uh, so I went and applied to law school and got in. The next year I was having breakfast with him and he relayed to me. He's like, man, I can't believe you went to school. Like I need a farm manager. I'd be able to get you a truck. You know, you get health insurance. And I was like, well, what the hell? Like, where was this a year ago? But, but that's really... Uh, I think the the industry kind of shifted quickly and people started figuring it out and hatcheries became more reliable and equipment became better. And so it was always something that was on the verge of being profitable. I mean, that was the, the standard at first. And, uh, you know, when I was in school is kind of when it jumped the shark, so to speak. So um, I'm, I'm grateful that I did go to school. Uh, tremendous experience. It's worth every penny that I spent on it. And as I was graduating, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do. I was looking at the kind of jobs and careers that were in a traditional legal aspect, and I was not very enamored by them. And I thought in a very millennial way, I'm going to go do what I love and what I'm passionate about, and I'm going to you know, do more for the environment than I could as an environmental attorney. After law school, Jeff started working for Mook Sea Farms on the Damariscotta River in Maine. Mook Sea Farms, founded by Bill Mook in 1985, is one of the largest hatcheries on the East Coast of the United States. They take oyster seeds, each about the size of a pinhead, uh, help them grow into juvenile oysters. That process takes about a year. Then the juveniles are sold to oyster growers along the coast from North Carolina to Maine. The oyster grower plants the juveniles in water where they can latch on to empty bits of oyster shells and start to form their own shells. After another two years or so, depending on the salinity of the water, the new oysters will be about three inches long and ready for harvest. Clearly, oyster farming is a commitment of time. Jeff soaked up the knowledge and experience and moved on from Mook Sea Farm to Atlantic Aqua Farms, where he is now the Director of Business Growth and Acquisitions. I wanted to know about his responsibilities at Atlantic Aqua Farms. Half of our company is a hatchery, so we grow, not only do we grow large oysters that are consumed on the half shell in restaurants, but we grow millions and millions of baby seed oysters for farmers uh, up and down the coast from Virginia to Maine. So I think we have about 120 farms that we support in Maine, probably about 200 farms total up and down the East Coast that we sell them their crop. That's amazing. Uh, Taking an oyster when it's just a seed, the vulnerable shellless oyster baby, if you will, and literally farming it. 
for the most part, as farmers on the East Coast, we don't pull from a wild population. We buy our oyster seed and then grow it in the gear or whatever method we use. Um, Scungus Bay Aquaculture has one of the oldest hatcheries in the Northeast, and we've been growing seed for a long time. When oysters are small, they are highly susceptible to uh, water quality changes and chemistry changes. And so they act as the canary in the coal mine, right? And we have seen on the coast, in hatcheries up and down the coast, uh, dramatic shifts in production and viability of oysters that have, for the most part, not been explained as much. The leading theory is it has to do with ocean chemistry and climate change. Um, Our hatchery does not use any quote unquote natural water. We have to alter the chemistry of the water before we bring it in to ensure that we get uh, production at the levels that we need. And that is the scariest thing. Um, You know, what happens if the zooplankton crash in an ecosystem? It's not a good thing. Just a quick sidebar here. Jeff and I talked about the zooplankton in an ecosystem. I had to look up exactly what zooplankton are, uh, tiny microscopic animals, it turns out, that are really important in the aquatic food chain. These tiny organisms, along with plankton, are nutrition sources for lots of animals, of fish and birds, Uh, And if zooplankton were not present, the rest of the ecosystem, including humans, would face a catastrophic loss of food. So Jeff went on to say that this source uh, that baby oysters need is being affected by climate change. And I wanted to know what other aspects of climate change might be affecting the shellfish aquaculture business. The other aspect of climate change that we feel uh, more on the farm side is the warming of the water brings in different species. It's changing the conditions that we grow in. So, you know, a Maryland blue crab is a crab that everybody associates down south. And we have had for the last three years, blue crabs on all of our leases. Blue crabs in Maine. Wow. I yeah I think of blue crabs I think of Maryland or Virginia. It's something I never saw when I first came up here, but they are prolific eaters of oysters, so it's not a great thing. It's a, you know a blue crab is like a green crab on steroids, and green crabs aren't even native. You know green crabs were always a problem um, up and down the coast of Maine, and as the waters warm, they've becoming more of a problem. And so between the Invasive species that are showing up all of a sudden, our coasts are starting to shift a little bit with the warming of the waters. Uh, And so we're going to have to start to deal with that. Turning to the health of our coastal seas, it was the 1972 Clean Water Act that established the basic structure for regulating discharges of pollutants into the waters of the United States. I wanted to know how Jeff regarded this legislation and its impact on the aquaculture industry more than 50 years after its passage. Without the Clean Water Act, you know, we are not farming oysters in the water. It's really that simple. And uh, shellfish, because they're so closely connected to the sea uh, and because they are, in essence, filters of the waterways, 
if that waterway is contaminated in any sort of way, you can't eat the shellfish. And so one good thing I try to tell people when I'm trying to help them understand about water quality and the areas that they live in, is I ask them if they can eat an oyster out of whatever bay it is that they're swimming or or living in and boating in. And I think people would be really shocked to look even on the main coast and to look at all the areas and all the acreage that's closed to shellfish farming because either, you know, there's a high bacterial level over here from runoff or there's an overboard discharge over here, or this is close to a septic plant. And in the past it was, you know, pulp and paper mills and excess pollution and things like that that not only prevented you from eating them, but killed all the all the shellfish in an area. And so we're experiencing this rebirth of our coastal areas into the productive beds that they once were. And uh, it's truly, I, I mean, we just had the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act this year. And Maine is intimately connected with it because I believe one of our senators at the time, Muskie, was a huge champion of that act. Right. Uh, Edward Muskie was, uh, in fact, the governor of the state of Maine and then a senator. Uh, he was also secretary of state for a while. Um, he was the chair of the subcommittee on air and water pollution, working hard to get Clean Water Act principles in place. And it's a little surreal to sit back and think of the opportunity that Maine has and other coastal communities now because of this legislation that occurred. And it's kind of a good marriage of my past with environmental law and also my current with being, you know, an oyster farmer. It's, it's kind of what I think you hope those environmental pieces of legislation do. And it kind of shows that just because you're an environmentalist doesn't mean you're saying, you know, no one's going to have a job and no one's going to work. We're just doing things now in a productive and beneficial way, as opposed to uh, carrying out practices that degrade and destroy the place that we live in. Jeff, it's clear to me that the aquaculture industry has, as you say, a great story to tell, not only in creating jobs, helping the environment, and providing opportunities for young professionals like yourself, but in addressing the critical need to feed a growing population. If you were to look 10, 20, or even 50 years down the road, where and how would you personally like to see the industry grow? I think the hope is that we can use aquaculture to really generate kind of another food revolution for the United States and the world. If you look at the amount of people that are come that are going to be here on this planet in the next 50 years, land-based agricultural practices, while they might be able to feed them, they're going to do it at such a negative impact on the environment that it's going to be extremely detrimental to our planet. So we, we need to find another way. So I would hope that we would be seeing this industry continue to sustainably grow on the coast in a manner that provides um, the economic benefit that we've seen in a small scale, you know, in mass to other coastal areas. We can't, we can't double the amount of fish in the sea. And there's just not that many fish in the sea. And so the way to do it, I feel, is to kind of see a shift of these communities from traditional fisheries to, 
you know, either a traditional fishery with some aquaculture mixed in with it or fully aquaculture activities. I, I truly feel that aquaculture is kind of the evolution of the fishing industry. And then I would hope in the next 20 or 30 years, we are, you know, the main source of um, aquatic protein on the Northeast Coast. Now, this has been great, Jeff, and I really want to thank you for your time. As this podcast is called Tales of the Sea, I wanted to ask you if you had a favorite story, perhaps, or book that resonated with you related to your life and work today. Honestly, if I'm, if I'm to think of a book that I like the most about my life on the sea, it's probably a big oyster. <laughs> That's one of my favorites as well. Hearing about... Uh... Oyster carts in Manhattan, much like they had hot dog carts. And then also the recipes in that book where they're like, oh, just take a, a small portion of oysters to make this dish. And it turns out to be like 75 <laughs> four inch oysters, right? It's right. a small portion of oysters. And it just, it blew my mind to think of like what the proportions that people were eating back then are. Right. The actual size of the oysters that were harvested back in the 17 and 1800s was amazing. Uh, that book is really one of my favorites as well. And, and that's Mark Kurlansky's The Big Oyster. I highly recommend the read to everyone, as does Jeff. Um, it's a terrific book. Jeff, thanks again for your time and all the best to you and your team as you continue your great work on the coast of Maine. Yeah, it was great. Appreciate it as well, Mark. That concludes this episode of Tales of the Sea. I'm Mark Winkworth. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And thanks for listening.